Hi, everyone. My name is Stephanie Smith, host of the Connection Place podcast, where we connect our heart's passion for God with our mind's understanding of Scripture, where we come together in the place where Christ longs to connect with us, His Word. In today's episode of the Luke 50-20 plan, we're diving into the first 26 verses of Luke chapter 6. We'll see Jesus call Himself the Lord of the Sabbath and come to learn what that means. We'll get the rundown of who the Twelve Apostles are, which basically just means the twelve people that Jesus handpicked to teach and follow in his ways and carry out his mission. Lastly, we're going to hear Jesus teach about something called the Beatitudes and also the Woes. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get right to it. Starting in verse 1, let's read together. On a Sabbath, he passed through the grain fields. His disciples were picking heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, and eating them. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Haven't you read what David and those who were with him did when he was hungry? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat? He even gave some to those who were with him. Then he told them, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, guys, so this can be a little bit of a confusing story here. But before we try to figure anything out, as always, let's just make sure we have a good grasp of what the text is actually saying before we move on. Let's zoom out before we zoom in. So what's happening here is that it's a Sabbath day, and Jesus is passing through the grain fields. Immediately, we're given to understand that his disciples are with him because the text tells us that they are picking heads of grain and eating them. Evidently, the Pharisees are there too. And they see this and they say, why are you doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? They're referring to the act of picking grain and eating it. Jesus answers them in his typical non-answer way by turning things around on them with a question. He asks them, haven't you read about David and what his guys did with him when he was hungry? David and his crew entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was definitely not allowed by anyone who wasn't a priest. And not only that, but David gave some of that bread to the people who were with him. Then Jesus wraps this question up with a statement that also gives us another title of Jesus. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. All right, so now that we've zoomed out, let's zoom in and see if we can figure out what's happening here. We've got Jesus and his disciples in the grain fields on a Sabbath day. Somehow the Pharisees are there too. We aren't told why they're there if it's happenstance or if they're following Jesus to see what he's up to. But regardless, they're there. And they see Jesus' disciples picking heads of grain, rolling them in their hands, and eating them. The Pharisees have a problem with this, evidently, saying it's unlawful to do this on the Sabbath. But what exactly makes it unlawful? Let's look at what the Bible Knowledge Commentary and Exposition of the Scriptures has to say on this. God allowed people to pick grain from a neighbor's field as they passed through. See Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, which says, When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck heads of grain with your hand, but do not put a sickle to your neighbor's grain. But the Pharisees, interpreting the law strictly, held that rubbing the heads together in order to eat the grain constituted threshing, which wasn't allowed on the Sabbath, because the threshing of grain was work. Jesus responded to the Pharisees' objection by referring to 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1-9. through This is the story about David that Jesus is talking about, when David had approached the priests at Nob and asked for bread. 
The only food available at the moment was the consecrated bread that only the priests were allowed to eat. But David was given the bread, and he and his companions ate it. The parallel in Jesus' teaching is clear. In the interest of survival, David and his companions were allowed to be above the law with the priest's blessing. Christ and his companions were also above the man-made law which the Pharisees proclaimed. Another parallel implicit in Jesus' teaching should not be missed. David, as God's anointed, was being hounded by the forces of a dying dynasty, the dynasty of Saul. Jesus was God's new anointed one, who was also being hounded by the forces of the dying dynasty of the Pharisees. The ultimate conclusion was that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, that is, he has authority even over matters of the law. So yeah, the Pharisees are basically taking a super strict, honestly not even relevant interpretation of the basic law of the Sabbath, which is that you can't work or thresh in your fields. They're saying that rubbing the grain heads in your hands is the same thing, which doesn't make any sense at all. And yet, don't we see this kind of thing happen all the time even now, where the spirit of the law gets lost to the letter of the law? Jesus will say later on that the Sabbath was made for man instead of man being made for the Sabbath, which was basically Jesus' way of saying, guys, wake up. God instituted the Sabbath to help human beings take much-needed rest, to help them remember every week that they can and should depend on God to keep them and care for them even when they aren't working in their own strength. God didn't institute the Sabbath just to impose even more rules and restrictions on humans to make their lives even more difficult. But that's what the Pharisees have done. They've taken something good and beautiful and helpful, a gift from God, and they've imposed silly rules on the day of rest that God never enacted. And so Jesus is challenging the Pharisees here by bringing up the example of David and using it to compare and contrast with this situation. Jesus is basically putting the Pharisees on notice. He's letting them know You think you guys are the ones running the show here, but I am the Lord over the Sabbath. I am the high priest able to understand and approve the needs and actions of these disciples. I am the anointed one from the line of David, and I am here to set people free from the oppression of these man-made laws that were never supposed to be in the way of God connecting with his people in the first place. So now that Jesus has established that he's Lord of the Sabbath, Let's see what else Jesus gets up to on a different Sabbath day, starting in verse 6. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. A man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The scribes and Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they could find a charge against him. But he knew their thoughts and told the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand here. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? After looking around at them all, he told him, stretch out your hand. He did, and his hand was restored. They, however, were filled with rage and started discussing with one another what they might do to Jesus. As always, let's zoom out before we zoom in. We're here on a different Sabbath day and Jesus is in the synagogue and teaching. A man is there with a shriveled right hand. The scribes and Pharisees are also there, and this time the text tells us why they're there. Because they want to keep their eyes on Jesus. They're watching him closely to see what he's going to do. 
Specifically, they want to see if Jesus is going to heal anyone on the Sabbath, which is unlawful and would let them bring a charge against Jesus. But Jesus knows what they're thinking again and seemingly invites controversy into his life by inviting the man with the shriveled hand to get up and stand where Jesus is. The man does so, and Jesus asks the crowd, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? After looking around at everyone, Jesus tells the man to stretch out his hand, and as the man does so, his hand is restored. The Pharisees and scribes are filled with rage at this blatant in-your-face healing by Jesus, and they start discussing amongst themselves what they might do to Jesus. All right, so here we have the first encounter, as documented by Luke, between Jesus and the Pharisees, where we understand that the Pharisees are now intentionally trying to catch Jesus in the act of doing unlawful things. Remember, unlawful by their standards. Because of course Jesus isn't doing anything unlawful by God's standards. The Pharisees are actively hunting Jesus at this point. Not necessarily to kill him yet. Of course that's coming. But to be able to charge him legally with some kind of religious crime. And Jesus, for his part, is absolutely not backing down or afraid of these guys. He's on mission. And that mission seems to include basically all the things that drive the Pharisees crazy. Which is kind of funny, honestly. But it's also very serious, because it will have serious consequences on Jesus' earthly life. But again, Jesus is here to set things right, and do what's right. He represents the fulfillment of the law, the true law, the law that God ordained. And he's going to do everything he can to help God's people see that the spirit of that good law of God has been and continues to be violated by these add-on laws and restrictions that the Pharisees created. See, the Pharisees claim to be holding people accountable for the letter of the law, to honor God, but that's not at all what they're doing, because the law they are holding people accountable for isn't God's law in the first place. It's their law. Maybe they started out with good intentions, but at some point they got carried away with their power and prestige, and they've used that power and prestige to ruin people's lives instead of stewarding the flock of God as indeed they are called as leaders to do. So Jesus is here on another Sabbath day, and the Pharisees are here too, and they're looking to catch him out. They're hoping to see him heal someone, because that's unlawful to do on the Sabbath, according to the Pharisees. Again, this is not against God's law, but the Pharisees attribute this kind of healing action as work. And perhaps for a human doctor, this is true, because humans have to actually work at healing. But Jesus, as we've seen, doesn't have to do any work at all to heal. His healing comes from God's power flowing through him. In this instance, Jesus literally just tells the man to stretch out his shriveled hand, and the hand is restored. So, what work did Jesus even do here? What can the Pharisees actually say Jesus did that was unlawful? It's definitely a quandary for the Pharisees if their goal is to get a charge on Jesus, which is why they are enraged by this. All of this plays into Jesus' bigger picture point which he makes by saying this, I ask you, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? So let's pause right here for a second before digging into why Jesus says this, because I'll admit, I do have a question and an immediate reaction here. My question is, why is Jesus insistent on healing this man on the Sabbath anyway? 
Jesus asks if it's lawful to save life or to destroy it, but I think we can agree that a withered hand probably isn't saving this man's life or destroying it. It's right there kind of in the middle as far as ailments and diseases go. It's certainly not a pleasant thing to live with, I'd imagine. Maybe it's even truly hindering this man's quality of life and ability to work. But he's not, from what we can understand, in immediate danger of dying. There's nothing in the text that would have us understand that this is an emergency of life or death proportions. It's just his hand. Given that assumption, why can't Jesus heal the guy's hand after the Sabbath is over? You're talking about a time difference of hours. It would still bring a beautiful restoration to the man's health and quality of life, and it wouldn't break any laws. So because of that logical reasoning of my own human mind, my reaction to Jesus here is that he's basically looking for trouble, (laughs) and that he's maybe even exaggerating what's at stake here. Jesus is talking about good and evil, saving life and destroying life, but it's just a man's hand. But Jesus isn't exaggerating here, and he's being very exact and calculated in what he's doing and why. Because he asks this question, and as he does, he looks around at everyone. I can just imagine that he's giving them a piercing, pay-attention-to-me stare, making sure all eyes and ears are on him. So we know Jesus means business here. He wants every single person in that space to understand the point he's making. Again, pulling from the Bible Knowledge Commentary, Jesus is trying to teach the crowd, and us, that refusing to do good on the Sabbath is tantamount to doing evil. If suffering is not alleviated when the opportunity is present to do so, then one is doing evil to the sufferer. Put another way, using the Sabbath laws to not do good, to instead do evil, cause suffering, or even to kill, is an ungodly perversion of the law. Thinking through this practically, we can see what Jesus is getting at here. Imagine if someone comes to us who is suffering, and we have the power in that moment to alleviate that suffering. But we say, oh, well, I can't do anything about that today because it's the Sabbath. Come back tomorrow. Well, how is that reflecting God's heart and love toward his people, toward our neighbors? How is that honoring God? After all, need knows no calendar. This whole idea is backed up in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 27 through 29, which say, When it is in your power, don't withhold good from the one to whom it belongs. Don't say to your neighbor, go away, come back later, I'll give it tomorrow, when it is there with you. See, there's no stipulation in this proverb about unless it's the Sabbath day. Because again, God's heart for the Sabbath isn't to keep people in suffering and bondage. It's to help people find rest and find their dependence on God. There is so much more about the law surrounding the Sabbath that we could discuss, and I wish we had the time today to do so. But as always, I encourage you to pick up this thread and follow it through with your own research. Picking up in verse 12, let's read. During those days, he went out to the mountain to pray and spent all night in prayer to God. When daylight came, he summoned his disciples and he chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles. Simon whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. All right, let's zoom out before we zoom in. Luke tells us that Jesus during those days 
would go to the mountain to pray and spend all night in prayer to God. Then, when the daylight came, Jesus summoned his disciples. He had twelve disciples in all, Simon, also named Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, another James, another Simon, and two Judases, one of whom became the eventual traitor to Jesus. Okay, so in this quick passage, we are given to understand that Jesus is doing some solo praying on the mountain. And my understanding, which could be wrong, is that Luke doesn't mean a generalized period of time here, but is talking about these specific days surrounding these specific teachings and healings and dealings with the Pharisees. The reason I think this is because Luke talks about what Jesus did when the daylight came around, as a specific and singular action. In any case, Luke tells us in almost a throwaway sort of way that Jesus went out to the mountain to pray and spent all night in prayer to God. But to me, that's not throwaway at all. That's super duper important to how Jesus operated. But also, I have to think that Jesus was just so tired. Did Jesus sleep at all during the time on the mountain? I know in my own life I've had sleepless nights where I've prayed and prayed, but I know there were points in those nights where I would actually fall asleep mid-prayer, even if it wasn't for very long. Because, well, I'm human. I'm made to sleep at some point, and since I don't work a night shift kind of job, I sleep at night. Jesus is human too, so I wonder if perhaps he did get at least some sleep during those nights, even if much of the actual time was spent in conscious prayer. Anyway, that's a tangent. It was very common for Jesus to retreat to the mountaintop to pray. But why the mountain, though? Well, as it turns out, the mountain is quite a significant place to be in Scripture. Let me read this excerpt from the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary about mountains. Many important events in the Bible took place on or near mountains. God called Moses to his work at Mount Horeb, sometimes called the Mountain of God. A part of God's call was the promise that the Israelite people would worship there upon their escape from Egypt. After the Exodus, God commanded Moses to gather the people at Mount Sinai. There, God gave the law, including the Ten Commandments, to Moses. Other Old Testament mountain episodes include Aaron's death on Mount Hor, the death of Moses on Mount Nebo, and Elijah's defeat of the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Much of Jesus' life and ministry also took place on mountains. One of the temptations took place on a very high mountain. Jesus' most famous teaching sermon is called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus went up to a mountain to pray. Jesus was transfigured on a mountain. There he was declared to be preeminent over both Moses and Elijah, the representatives of the Law and the Prophets. Many of their greatest victories also came on mountains. The term mountain is used symbolically too. It is a natural image for stability, obstacles, and God's power. God will remove all obstacles when his redemption is complete and every mountain and hill will be made low. Mountains have often been called holy places. Jerusalem often was called Mount Zion, the hill of the Lord. God met his people there in worship. And the new Jerusalem is also known as Mount Zion. So we can see that a lot is going on in the mountains and that mountains are important to what God is doing and going to do. But all that aside, I can imagine that being on the mountain is generally just going to be much more quiet, much less crowded, if indeed there are any people at all. There aren't going to be too many other places geographically where Jesus is likely to find the kind of solitude he's looking for 
to connect with his father without disruption or distraction. So after Jesus wraps up his night of mountain prayer, he comes back down and summons his 12 disciples. And here we get a listing of all their names. We don't get all their stories of how they were called, at least not in Luke's account. Indeed, I don't know much about some of these disciples at all. What I do think is interesting is how many of them share each other's names. There's two Simons, two James, two Judases. I mean, as someone with a common first name myself and a super common last name, I can imagine how annoying that might have been to constantly have to differentiate myself. You know, hey James, come here. Uh, which James are you talking to? Fun little story, in high school I had a math class with four other Stephanies, and it got to the point where I was eventually known by my full name, Stephanie Ryan, as if it was one word. That followed me all through high school from that point and I wonder if it might have been similar for these same named disciples. Anyway, continuing in verse 17, let's read. After coming down with them, he stood on a level place with a large crowd of his disciples and a great number of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. They came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those tormented by unclean spirits were made well. The whole crowd was trying to touch him, because power was coming out from him and healing them all. As always, let's zoom out before we zoom in. Jesus comes down from the mountain and stands on a level place, so not a mountain, (laughs) with his disciples and a large crowd of people from all over Judea and Jerusalem and even from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. These people all came to hear Jesus and to be healed by Jesus. People who were tormented by unclean spirits were made well. The whole crowd is trying to touch Jesus because they understand and can see that power is coming out from him and healing them all. I mean, wow, this is just really awesome. Jesus comes from the mountain space where he was alone, and sure enough, we've got a whole huge crowd from all over the region who are here to see him. It's pretty clear that if Jesus didn't go to the mountains and other deserted places, he would just constantly be hounded. But can you really blame these people? Because he's truly an answer to their needs. His teaching, his healing, his power, everything about him is meeting their physical needs and the needs of their hearts. He has real, true, authoritative, effective power emanating from him. The power of God, the power that has been entrusted to Jesus by God. And these people know it. They know he's the real deal. Even if they don't know the full extent of who he is, they know that he's special and authentic. In the end, these people just want to be well. And to be well, they need Jesus. The same is true for us today. Picking up in verse 20, let's read. Then looking up at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, because the kingdom of God is yours. Blessed are you who are hungry now, because you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, because you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note, your reward is great in heaven, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. 
Let's again zoom out before we zoom in. Jesus looks away from the crowd and turns his attention to his disciples. And he says, Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry. Blessed are you who weep. Blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and insult you and slander your name as evil because of me. He tells them to rejoice in that day and leap for joy, to take note and remember that your reward is great in heaven because it was just this same way for the prophets. Here we have what are referred to as the Beatitudes. Beatitude by definition means supreme blessedness. It comes from the Latin word beatus, which means both happy and blessed. So Jesus is looking up at his disciples and he tells them that the poor are blessed because the kingdom of God is theirs. The hungry are blessed because they will be filled. Those who weep and cry and mourn are blessed because they will laugh. And when people hate you, leave you out, reject you, insult you, slander your name as evil, all because you claim Jesus, you too are blessed. Because this is exactly what happened to the prophets of God in the Old Testament. It seems kind of strange, though, for Jesus to say people like these, poor, hungry, sad, rejected, are blessed. Those things, those states of being, don't feel like blessings. Definitely not by earthly standards, not by human standards. But Jesus isn't really all that interested or bothered by the standards of earth. He is called to, and is calling us to, the reality and standard of heaven. And in heaven, the people who forsake the world and all its blessings and trappings, to know and follow and love Jesus, to do this life his way, despite all the challenges that entails. Well, those people are blessed, supremely blessed. They will be supremely happy and blessed. One thing to note is that this is not the famed Sermon on the Mount, which is covered in Matthews chapter 5 through 7. But it is sort of like a mini version of that, and it's known as the Sermon on the Plain. These verses kick off this sermon, which goes all the way through to verse 49 of this chapter, and is also covered in other sections of Luke. The Lexham Bible Dictionary notes that the parallel material in the book of Luke's Sermon on the Plain does not actually occur in one section, but is scattered throughout the Gospel. This suggests that the sermon is actually a compilation of Jesus' sayings by Luke, rather than something spoken by Jesus on a single occasion. What I think I love most, though, about this little section here is Luke's note that Jesus looks up at his disciples when he speaks these things. This isn't really related or even biblical, but I just have to share this anyway. I don't know if any of you watch The Chosen, which is a show based on the scriptures of Jesus' life, but there's an episode where Jesus is preparing to give his Sermon on the Mount, which, as we know, also begins with the Beatitudes. Jesus is running through his sermon and going over it with Matthew, and as he's going through each of the Beatitudes, the scene depicts Jesus envisioning each of his beloved disciples. Jesus is thinking of them as he ponders the Beatitudes. His eyes are full of love and tenderness towards these people he's chosen, as he understands deeply that the life he's called them to is full of beauty and wonder, but also full of pain and cost and suffering. He's called his followers into territory that is new for them, that will cost them everything and will give them everything too. And I just love that scene so much 
Because again, going all the way back to Hagar in Genesis and how she names God El Roy, the God who sees me, I can just imagine how clearly and deeply and with so much love Jesus truly sees each one of us who love him. He gets what we're going through and knows what it's cost each of us to follow him. He loves us ardently and he wants his followers, not the crowd, not those who are just along for the ride, but those of us who have given up much out of devotion to him. Jesus wants us to know how truly, supremely blessed we are. These beatitudes are our reminder of what's waiting for us, of what's ours, what he's promised us. In this beautiful, upside-down kingdom of Christ, we are truly and supremely blessed beyond measure. All right, let's close out the episode by contrasting these beatitudes with the woes, starting in verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. Woe to you who are now full, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are now laughing, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the false prophets. All right, one more time, let's zoom out before we zoom in. Jesus contrasts the Beatitudes with the woes. Woe meaning grief and horror. Jesus is saying woe to those who are rich, who are full, who are laughing, who are spoken well of. Jesus says that these people who have it all now and here on earth will one day lose all that and find themselves bereft of these things. Part of me wishes we could have just stopped with the Beatitudes and left it on that positive, beautiful note. But those of us who love Jesus need to heed all of his word, not just the parts that are sweet and rosy and nice and make us feel good. We need to heed his instructions and warnings too. Otherwise, Jesus becomes just another God we put in our box where we can control him. A counterfeit God made in our image and for our purpose instead of the other way around. Jesus, because he loves us, wants us to understand and know and warn us of the grief and horror we can expect if we love this worldly way too much. So here Jesus contrasts the Beatitudes. Each point of the Beatitude has a counterpoint here, basically giving exact opposites of those beautiful blessings. Jesus is saying that for those who are rich and comfy and cozy in this life, that this is all the comfort they should expect because they won't receive that in the life to come. Those who have no hunger and are completely full now, they will one day be hungry. Those who are laughing now, they will one day mourn and weep. Those who have a good reputation now are just like those ancestors who were well thought of in their day too, just like the false prophets and the false teachers were. So is Jesus saying here, it's a sin to be rich, full, laughing, spoken well of? No. No, we must be careful here, because it can seem like that's what he's saying. But really, Jesus is indicating something much deeper than the surface nature of those things. He's suggesting a posture and characterization of the heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When you treasure these things, when you treasure your riches, your comfort, your food, your satisfaction, your ease of life, your reputation, when you prize these things above God and above caring for others, 
Well, that's the problem Jesus is talking about here. Because what good is gaining the world if it forfeits your soul? That's what Jesus is talking about here. These things are not bad in and of themselves. It's when these are the things that we prize and treasure above all else that they ruin us. Jesus must always be first. Loving God must be first. And then right on its heels, loving people. Doing things Jesus' way, the way he modeled them. That's what Jesus is after. And that's what causes us to be blessed by heaven's standard. Take note, as Jesus says, your reward is great in heaven. Join me next time for the continuation of this passage to see where Jesus takes us next. Thanks again so much for listening. I hope today's episode has blessed you and encouraged you in your pursuit of Jesus through his word. See you next time here at The Connection Place.